The NWSL announced a transformative set of media rights deals, the federal government is taking a hard look at issues in college sports, and we have an inspiring interview with veteran and Paralympic gold medalist Brad Snyder. It's Friday, November 10th. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. There is a ton of news in the world of college sports. Joining me now to discuss is front office sports reporter Amanda Kristovich. Welcome, Amanda. Hey, how's it going? On Wednesday, President Biden met with former college football players uh, to discuss issues within the sport, especially around compensation and benefits and all those things. Um, I'm wondering both kind of what came out of the meeting and also the significance of the meeting itself. So I'll let you take those in either order. Yeah, I think the significance of the meeting was literally just that they were having it. Um, one of my sources at um, Jason Stahl, who heads the College Football Players Association, um, which is an organization which is wh- whose name is relatively self-explanatory, um, told me that White House officials that he spoke with basically likened this event to events that Biden has hosted with Starbucks workers who are looking to organize into a union and Amazon workers who are looking to organize, which is essentially to say that Biden has been on this labor organizing kick to have meetings with groups of employees that are not being served by the traditional labor organizations in the U.S., like the AFL-CIO, for example, or like the NFLPA in um, the sports world. So it's really significant that Biden put college football players in that bucket of, you know, all of these other major labor organizing movements in the United States. What came out of the meeting um, you know, nothing concrete because it was more of like an educational opportunity for the administration to talk with former college football players and to educate them on what the issues of the day are, what NIL is looking like, whether they are interested in unionization, whether they're interested in revenue sharing, and also um, a big issue, which was health and safety. And I will say the one thing I'm told that Biden did actually say in the meeting was that there were a couple NCA healthcare reforms that he definitely was in favor of, um, at least from like an idealistic standpoint. So the rest of it was more of like he he was there for like 30 to 40 minutes, and I believe it was a little over two hours of the session. Um, but members of his administration obviously um, were kind of there the whole time, just asking questions, trying to learn more about the industry. And so, yeah, all those issues you you hit on NIL, revenue sharing, uh, unionization, you know, potential health benefits. All there seems to be a growing appetite for some kind of federal action on that, even from the NCAA itself. What kind of effects might the the Biden administration have here on on the world of college sports? I mean, look, um, you know, that's really kind of like um, an administrative, not administrative question, um, a, how the U.S. government works question, right? Um, because ultimately, you know, the lobbying efforts have been taking place from the NCA side in Congress so that Congress can, you know, write a law about NIL, pass it, send it to Biden's desk, right? 
Um, obviously, Biden has his own powers, but I think at this point, what is most important is that college athlete organizing efforts and efforts that may not necessarily be about athletes becoming employees, but could be a result of that, um, have caught his attention. And I think that that also is going to mean something significant for um, the folks in Congress, because, you know, especially the House and Senate Democrats are looking to Biden, right? Um, He's leading them on policy issues. And so the question now is, are they going to look at how Biden took a completely different approach, focusing on unionization and revenue sharing, that Congress, whereas Congress has taken the NIL is the sky is falling approach and we need a bill on NIL, right? So we'll see if there if that sort of constitutes a shift. Interesting. Before we let you go, I want to shift gears, staying within the college world. Uh, you wrote a piece about how the dissolution of the Pac-12 is having effects. We've mostly been focusing on college football. Obviously, it's going to have big effects on college basketball, too. Uh, what have what are you finding there? Yeah, so I think there are two main things that I'm looking at right now. Um, it appears the NCAA tournament is going to, you know, both the men's and the women's will stay kind of intact as they are. Um, but the breakup of the Pac-12, which is not happening this season, it's happening next season. Um, there's a lot of concern in the basketball community about how that's going to affect travel and scheduling because um, basketball is one of the sports that plays games multiple times a week. And when you're in conference play, which usually starts in January, and you're playing a game on Tuesday and a game on Saturday, and you have opponents all across four different time zones, it's going to be extremely, you know, and across two semesters, it's going to be very difficult to create, um, frankly, a tenable schedule. Um, that's a lot of what the coaches are concerned about. There's also like, you know, just the more general concern about the survival of certain rivalries. Um, as a Georgetown alum, I will say that like Georgetown and Syracuse were able to sort of revive that historic rivalry by creating um, a co- or signing a contract that essentially allows them to do one Georgetown Syracuse game per year during the non-conference season, right? Because Georgetown's in the Big East, Syracuse is in the ACC. Um, so that's been relatively successful, but that is like a concerted effort and sometimes um, an expensive effort that not all of these schools that are going to be like leaving their current conference are going to want to follow. Yeah, very interesting and definitely something we'll, we'll have to keep an eye on as, as this progresses. Mandy Christovich, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. The National Women's Soccer League is entering a new era. The league announced a set of domestic media rights deals with ESPN, CBS, Amazon, and Scripps Sports for a total of $60 million per year over the four years beginning with next season. That's a 40x increase over the previous deals, which brought in $1.5 million per season. CBS gets 21 games per season, ESPN gets 20, Amazon gets 27, including a playoff game and a regular Friday night slot, and Scripps will broadcast 50 games on ION, including a regular Saturday doubleheader. This will completely change the game when it comes to how much exposure the league gets, how much players can make on and off the field, the NWSL's ability to compete with European leagues for talent, and the value of these teams. Or, as NWSL Commissioner Jessica Berman put it, this is the beginning of our future.
Alabama's Nick Saban is the highest paid college football coach at $11.4 million per season. But in a way, the whole coaching thing is just a side hustle to his other business, which is owning luxury car dealerships. Saban co-owns Dream Motor, which just purchased two Mercedes-Benz dealerships, an auto repair shop, and a former police station in South Florida for around $700 million, according to Automotive News. That adds to Saban's collection of Mercedes-Benz dealerships in Baton Rouge, Houston, Nashville, and two in the Birmingham area. The two in South Florida make seven, meaning Saban now has the same number of Mercedes-Benz dealerships as he does college football national titles. Dream Motor also has a Ferrari dealership in Nashville and an Infinity one in Birmingham. And Saban's not afraid to sell to a rival. Ole Miss running back Quinchon Judkins said he bought a Mercedes from Dream Motor using money he made from his NIL deals. Up next, I spoke to Brad Snyder, who is a veteran that was blinded while serving overseas in Afghanistan. He is now a champion Paralympic athlete and someone who works to provide access and resources to other para-athletes. I was inspired by our conversation, and that's coming up right after this. Very excited to be joined now by Brad Snyder, five-time gold and two-time silver medalist in the in Paralympic swimming and gold medalist in the triathlon. Welcome, Brad. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you guys today. Yeah, absolutely. So why don't you just start by telling us about your journey to becoming a Paralympic swimmer? Sure. So uh, like many, or unlike many, I guess, I didn't dream of being a Paralympic athlete. I dreamed of being an Olympic athlete. Um, that didn't pan out for me. Um, I had had the opportunity to swim in college. That was a great chance. But then I joined the Navy shortly afterward. Um, unfortunately, in 2011, I stepped on an improvised explosive device in Afghanistan and lost my vision as a result. Though uh, yeah, I guess someone was pretty quick to point out to me afterward that I was really lucky to be injured in a Paralympic year and was able to make a pretty quick transition into Paralympic competition shortly after my injury and had the opportunity to join Team USA for the 2012 Paralympics in London. And so you are already on the path to becoming potentially an Olympic athlete, sounds like. I dreamed of it for sure. And I thought I was pretty good. And I was good at a national level, but never really Olympic caliber as a swimmer. I swam in college and had a great collegiate career, uh, but retired from swimming in 2006 and never thought I'd come back to it. So to have the opportunity to represent my country in the Paralympic space was like the realization of a dream that I had let go of. And it was an amazing feeling for it to come back. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What kinds of access issues do para-athletes face in being able to pursue a life in sports? So it's interesting in the Paralympic space, the barrier to entry is a lot higher. You know, we use a lot of adaptive equipment, adaptive techniques. It's hard to find ways to train. Specifically for me as a blind person, I can't train in the lane with a lot of other people. So I have to find time and space to train by myself. So the Um, it's more difficult for us to train, but by and large, para-athletes frequently have less resources. The unemployment rate for those with disabilities is something like 70%. Um, so we, we have higher expenses and lower opportunities. So that, that kind of barrier to entry is significant across the gamut of sport, especially for sports like triathlon, where, you know, to compete, I need a tandem bike, which on average costs anywhere from nine to $20,000. So you can't just go down to the local bike shop and pick up a tandem bike out of deal. You know, I have to have them custom made. So uh, the, the the access struggle that we have in the Paralympics is really getting that, you know, reducing that barrier of entry, getting gear to athletes who need it, getting them resources and opportunities to begin competing, especially at a young age. And that's why I'm really proud to partner with organizations like City, who are doing a lot of uh, great work to, to reduce that barrier of entry, not only here in the U.S., but around the world as well. 
Yeah, and actually, I wanted to to expand on that. What tell us a little bit more about the work you're doing to you know reach more athletes and and improve equity and access here. So I'm trying to leverage my platform as a as a role model, I guess, uh, as a, an example of what people with disabilities can do, instead of focusing on the things that they can't do with their their limitations, whether that's blindness or being in a wheelchair or losing a limb. I think the Paralympics does a good job of reframing that debate and really focusing on what they can do with a little bit of adaptive equipment, but then utilizing that 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 platform to speak about the real nuts and bolts challenges I face on a daily basis, like the inaccessibility of websites or recapture verifications that prohibit me from logging into my social media accounts or web portals with my work or wherever else. There are these relatively innocuous kind of barriers that exist for me that don't exist for other people that if only the world was a little bit more aware, we could start to reduce those challenges for those with disabilities. And so I guess my primary goal is to leverage the platform I've been given through sport to represent a positive example of what's possible for those with disabilities, but then also to speak authentically about the real challenges we face and how we can mitigate those challenges as much as possible. And would you say that that you know, leveraging that platform you know, to, to bring attention to those issues, is that a primary goal of the Paralympics itself? Yes, uh, the, you know the mission of the Paralympic, the IPC, the International Paralympic Committee, is to uh, make a more inclusive world through sport. So I think you know th- the, those with disabilities often find themselves very ostracized by society on the basis of their impairments. Um, but there are a lot of ways that we can more meaningfully integrate them. And I think the Paralympics exist as a very positive way to do that. Um, instead of picketing for legislation and sort of forcing positive change, we're trying to change a cultural narrative within society about what disability means. It's not a death sentence. It's not something that should be pitied. In fact, it should be something that's celebrated. And I think the Paralympics does an incredible job of that. Oh, I think our, our listeners have a sense of the Olympics and how they have grown and progressed over the years. How would you describe the progression of the Paralympics? So a, a lot of people will always introduce me as a para-Olympian, and it's not para-Olympian, it's Paralympian. There is no para-Olympian, but the, the root para in Paralympic actually means parallel, uh, games that happen in parallel to the Olympic Games. And I think our journey has been very much that, is, is very parallel to the Olympic Games. It, it exists in a similar plane, but just askew. And askew not only um, kind of in its history and its dynamics, but Um, in society as well. So uh, what is represented for the Olympic Games, like, you know, the Olympic Games shows us like, what is a human, uh, what is a human body capable of? We watch Michael Phelps at six, seven and, you know, 200 pounds with giant feet. What can he achieve in the sport of swimming is really kind of like the greatest expression of our physical capability. I think in the Paralympic space, we're, th- we're showing that in a different dimension. We're, throwing, we're showing that in sort of the spirit. What is the human spirit capable of? It doesn't necessarily matter what the human body is capable of, but what is that spirit capable of? If you can take my legs away or you can take my sight away, I can still you know, express the, the best version of myself in a sport like swimming or triathlon if you give me that opportunity. So I think that word parallel really comes to mind. It's in many ways, shape, or form, the same thing that we see in the Olympic space, but just in a different dimension. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that's that's um, a new framing for me personally, I, and it's it's a really I think helpful and inspiring way to think about it. Is there anything you're looking forward to specifically around the 2024 Paralympics? 
Well, uh, if I'm being selfish, I'm looking forward to the closing ceremonies when the torch is given to the United States to host the next games in 28. Um, in, uh, in, in parallel to that, I had a baby girl last year. My daughter is now 20 months old, and she's just now getting to the point where I think she's going to be able to look at the Olympics and the Paralympics and start to understand what it is and see it as the magic that I see it as. And I think we're really going to be able to ignite that flame in her heart. So we're going to bring her to France next year and really try to expose her to the games for the first time. And then I think LA will be the next opportunity for her to really, you know, imbue herself or steep herself in Olympic and Paralympic culture. So that's probably the the next thing I'm most excited about with the uh, Paris games coming up next year. Yeah. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. In, ter- in terms of the ability of para-athletes to find sponsorships that help them compete, is that something where you've seen movement in, in either direction over the years? Yeah, for sure. It's been in fits and starts. It's certainly not linear, but you know, I began my Paralympic journey in 2012, and there were some sponsorship opportunities for para-athletes at that point. If you remember back to that games, there was Oscar Pistorius, who was a bit of an international phenomenon based on his ability to compete in both the Olympics and Paralympics. Um, he became a controversial figure for other reasons afterward. But I think that that kind of was uh, indicative of the time of really the first year, the first quad, as we say in the games, that there were any kind of like professional opportunities, sponsorship money, and, and celebrity status for para-athletes. Uh, there was a belief that that was the boon. That was the watershed moment. And all of a sudden, para-athletes were going to be seen on the same plane as Olympic athletes. And that proved not to be the case over the ensuing years. However, over time, there's definitely been linear growth in uh, sponsorship interest, commercial opportunities, and there's exceeding you know, exceeding parity uh, with the way that para-athletes and Olympic athletes are seen in specifically in the United States. I think the, uh, you know, the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee now has led a lot of that, you know, effort to make their, uh, to to create parity between Olympians and Paralympians. And I definitely feel that not only in my camaraderie with Team USA as a whole, uh, but also in the, in the sponsorship domain as well. I believe every para-athlete I've spoken to is also a veteran. How strong is that connection between those two communities? It's very strong, but it's not a one for one. I mean, the the military representation in the Paris space represents something like less than fifteen percent of the athletes who are on the team. Um, there, if you combine the Olympic and Paralympic team, there were I think twelve of us, you know, at uh, it, that went to Tokyo, something along those lines, who were veterans. So it's it's a strong connection, but it's certainly not the preponderance of athletes by any measure. Um, but there is a really special connection, and I think it has a lot to do with. You know, within the military culture, physical fitness and a, an appetite for sports is very, very strong. And you know, speaking for myself in my journey of adapting to an injury, sports was a very, very natural progression from the hospital into I need to do something to get my body in motion, get my spirit in motion, and find out a way to adapt to my new set of challenges. Um, and that's not unique to me at all. Um, and there are a lot of wounded veterans who have found that success. You know, maybe not at the Paralympic level, but certainly finding you know, spiritual success in adapting to their injuries through sports. And so that connection is very, very strong. I think the VA has been smart to recognize that and has a lot of support for anybody who wants to get active in the recreation space, whether you just want to ride your bike around the neighborhood or actually compete in the Paralympics. There's a decent amount of resources that are there for military vets. I think a, a, a big struggle we have now is achieving some level of parity to, and I've heard this a lot, if you're a 
disabled youth in the United States, you don't have the same access to resources that, say, an injured veteran does. So there are great organizations out there like the Challenge Athletes Foundation out in San Diego who are providing similar style resources to specifically youth who are born with a disability or who incur their disability younger in life. And again, the, the ability for nonprofits like the Challenge Athletes Foundation to subsist, it really depends on big sponsorship interests from co- corporations like City, who again, do a good job of putting those resources out there for this, the, the challenged athlete community. So those are the questions I had for you. Is there anything you would like to add? No, I'm just really grateful to have the opportunity to speak about something I'm so passionate about. I'm really excited about the Paralympic movement and all of its different iterations, especially, you know, given that Paris Games coming up. And then I just really want, I really hope that everybody in America can get really excited and get behind Team USA as we bring the games home uh, in 2028, both the Olympics and the Paralympics. All right. Well, Brad Snyder, thank you for your service and thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thank you so much. That's it for today. Enjoy your Veterans Day weekend. And to any veterans listening, thank you for your service. Thank you to all of you for tuning in. We will see you on Monday.